0: Your job is to tell the
1: truth. That's your job as a journalist. And if you can't do that, you're in the wrong job. That it wasn't my job, that it isn't our job to be popular. It was interesting to me how they fit together as a book.
2: I mean, I'm not nearly smart enough to have done that on purpose. When Lance went on uh, Oprah Winfrey Winfrey and uh, and admitted being a drugs cheat, the Sunday Times said, thank you very much. We are now counter suing (laughs) you.
3: Welcome to our end of year best of behind the lines special with me, Gavin Cooney. Now, if you're a 42 member and loyal listener to this show, you'll know what the show is all about. But for the benefit of those of you listening who are yet to sign up to the most fulfilling and wholesome Irish sporting bandwagon since we all became laser radial sailing experts back in 2016, here's a little flavour of what the show is about. So every fortnight, we talk to one of the best sports writers in the English language. And along with a chat about their careers and, a, and their sharing of a few of their best war stories, they also bring along a few of their favourite pieces of sports writing to discuss. Now, at this point, I do have to read a note from our lawyers to say that any similarities to BBC radio show Desert Island Discs are entirely accidental. Now the show is exclusive to members of The 42 and to sign up now and get access to the full 12 episode back catalogue of this show, go to members.the42.ie or just follow the link that we're going to put in the description for this episode. Uh, As a member, you'll also get access to plenty more besides this show including Paul Dollary's now award-winning football family podcast, and the Bonus Rugby Weekly Extra podcast, which features minds as rich and varied as Murray Kinsella and Gavin Casey's, along with exclusive access to our monthly members' draw, newsletters, events and a hell of a lot more. It's a fiver a month or, if you want to buy the annual package, it's you may have guessed 42 euro a year. Now, we're going to be back with plenty more great guests on this show from January onwards. But for now, let's look back at some of our favourite moments from a few of our previous episodes. And we're going to start with our very first show in which Malachy Clerkin of the Irish Times told us of the cliché the writers should avoid like the plague.
1: What I definitely was starting off was somebody who... I liked reading. I liked writing-ish. You know, I liked English in in school. Um, But those, your first 10 years is a lot of finding out how shit you are. It's an awful lot of sending stuff in and being told, really? Come on, come on. I mean, I I remember, I remember I stole so many things, so many sort of, Concepts and conceits I remember I I remember I went to interview Gary Mackay once The You know okay, the, yeah, the, yeah. the Scottish guy And uh, uh, My intro My intro was something like The journalist I, I started referring to myself As the journalist in it And I remember Putting it in And Paul Howard Kind of reading it And going What are you doing? <laughs> and I went oh, You know that's, that's legitimate You know Some people do that He says yeah, but you don't do that, okay. And I was going, Well, yeah, but I'm just trying. It goes, No, 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 go away, go away, don't hit. That's that's <laughs> your that is not you, be you. And that, in fairness, was a great lesson that, that both him and, and Mark Jones gave me was like, I was so much younger than them, I was whatever, 10 years younger than them, I guess. Uh, so I was 20, 21, 22, or I was whatever. And I remember clear as day, Mark. Uh, I I wrote a piece one time. I don't know what, what it was about. It wasn't even that long, but whatever language I had used, whatever sort of formulation of words I had put on it, it was it was me writing what I thought should be in the paper. Yeah. As in as in what the standard or the standard text was, that kind of thing. And I remember him going to me, but. But you don't talk like that. You don't, you don't sound like that. None of this sounds like you. And also you're, you're writing here as, well, they, they, those, yeah, that was one thing that he he had a line for me. he says like, you're writing this as, I think, I think I had a line in it. and to this day, I hate this line when I hear people saying, you know, uh, I've done an interview with this fellow and he was refreshingly honest. Man, I fucking hate that. And like, and that comes from, and I'm pretty sure I had written that. And like, I was 21. Who am I to be saying that somebody was, how am I being refreshed by somebody's honesty? Like, I was still in college. You know, I was still in fourth year in college. Who the... I to be jadedly going oh yeah I mean I'm so bored talking to these sports people I finally found one who is refreshingly honest with me and but that was him that was Mark kind of saying to me like you're here for us to use your worldview to a certain extent I know your worldview as a 21 year old college student is very narrow but it is a worldview it is something it it is something that you can use but don't try and be Somebody who's 35 who has been doing this for 15 years because you're just not. Yeah. So what is the point of you bringing that perspective? I can get that from the rest of them. You're young. You're here. You're you. Look, write what you're going to write. It might be shit, and we'll send it back to you. But that's fine. And that was that was the glory of the Sunday tribute. Yeah. And that was that's uh, an incredible bit of advice to get. Oh, totally, totally. And I guarantee, I'd say I was 20, 21, maybe 22 when I got it. And to this day, when I see like. Anybody other than Hugh McIlvaney writing refreshingly honest, in the last 10 years, I've kind of gone, no, you, you are nobody to be refreshed by this person, by this on- the honesty of this hurler.
3: Now Malachy may seethe against refreshing honesty, but for years a heroic cohort of journalists sought mere honesty from a certain Lance Armstrong. Now our fourth episode of this podcast features a chat with former Sunday Times sports editor Alan English, who had a front row seat for The Times legendary pursuit of Armstrong. The paper eventually won the war, but as you're about to hear, there were plenty of bruising battles along the way.
2: My involvement was kind of almost entirely accidental really um, so so david David came to the paper in' '96 Wrote a brilliant piece from Atlanta on Michelle Smith. Um, I remember the headline: um, "Poison in the Golden Pool." Uh, became British Sports Writer of the Year on the back of that piece and a couple of other superb pieces that he wrote. Um, you know, and you know, I, 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 I developed a great friendship uh, with David, um, which which remains to this day, uh, as I have with you know, I'd say most of the writers. Um, that I've sort of been close to over the years. You know, I I consider them all to be very good friends. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the first intimation we had that there was something up with with Lance Armstrong, of course, was the tour he won in '99. Um, David was on that tour for the Sunday Times. You know, didn't quite believe what he was seeing and you know, started to started to question the performance. So so I would have been, you know, I, I think at that stage I was deputy sports editor. So the, the distinction there would be that I'd gone from the Irish edition to the UK edition. Okay. okay. Um, so, and I was working with um, the guy who remains the sports editor today, Alex Butler. Um, so we had a good combination, you know, Alex was brilliant um, with pitchers. You know, you know, visually stunning. Um, I was good with words, so we were kind of a good double act. Um, so David was working away, wrote a whole string of pieces um, that uh, you know I would have, you know, edited or you know helped edit or you know just helped get into the paper and talk to him about. And you know he was getting closer, a big deeper and deeper into the story, um, and then he was going to write a book. Um, so the book became LA Confidential. The book was published in June 2004 um, in French, right? No, there was no English publisher that would touch it.
3: That's uh, for legal
2: reasons, is it? For right? legal reasons, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was it was regarded as highly dangerous um, because Armstrong had never um, failed a test. Well, he had failed a test, but it was kind of so covered up. Um, but he was regarded by, you know, all but one or two non-believers as, as, as a sporting god um, and had you know become commercially huge. So David um, was excited about the book. Um, he'd worked on the book with a French journalist called Pierre Ballester, and he had a lot of contacts, uh, whistleblowers, who, who were sort of coming to the table with new information Um, about Lance, and this was big, you know, there was a lot of stuff like the Hospital Confession uh, in America, Uh, Betty Andreo, you know, anyone who's followed the story will be familiar with the sort of, you know, principal protagonists in it. Um, So, but it was big for David that the the story would appear in the English language, right? So we agreed that um, the book would be extracted first in the Sunday Times, and we were going to publish four pages of extracts Uh, and about about, over about 10,000 words okay so
3: just at this point just in case anyone is wondering why French a French publisher was interested in English wasn't it's just that their
2: libel laws yeah exactly basically exactly yeah 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 it's much easier I mean it's you know as a journalist today in in this country it's shocking our defamation laws are, are, are appalling you know some of the some of the some of the legal letters and some of the claims that we get you know at a local level are absolutely a joke but mm. let's not go there with that um that's sort of off off topic um so anyway david came into the office i think it's a wednesday he had his 10,000 words um at that time um the, the sunday times was like 32 pages every week um there was a lot of book extracts going in there i i used to buy the books and um you know do the extracts so it was it was falling to me to sort of work with him on laying out the four pages, deciding on the material, illustrating it, and so on and so forth. So there was a meeting that took place in in um, Alex Butler's office, uh, which was attended by David, Alex, myself, and um, Alistair Brett, who was a Sunday Times in-house lawyer. Alistair had some concerns about the piece, some, some serious concerns about the piece, um, which he expressed. Um, uh, a second meeting took place. Alistair then became... Even more concerned about it, he said, "Look, you know we need, uh, you know we need we need assurances from these people that they will come into court and 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 stand up. If we are sued, we need to make sure that these people are going to are going to be available to us. That they won't run from the story. Uh, so David would have contacted uh, his people. Um, they would have, they would have said, yes, look, we stand over everything. We won't we won't see you short.' Um, but then Alistair sort of looked for affidavits, and it's starting getting very late into the week." And um, one of the women, one of the, one of the, one of the sources, the contacts David had started crying on the phone. The whole thing was horrendously emotional. It, it was incredibly tense. One of the most memorable weeks I, I've had in journalism, really. Um, and to cut to the chase, Alistair basically said, I cannot recommend that the Sunday Times publishes um, these extracts. Um, so David was crushed Uh, he walked out of the office. I walked out with him. Um, he told me he was resigning. Um, he said he felt, uh, he had to do it. He felt honor bound to the people who had given him the information in the first place who were expecting to see it in English, in a language in which they could read it, you know, um, and understand it. Um, so we walked down to his car, um, there wasn't a word said when he got into the car I said look just think about this you know you've got a you've got a, a wife and, and and children to support here um, but he he's mind made up that he he, he he felt terribly let down he felt that the paper was being um, wasn't being brave enough um, I think he subsequently admitted um, in his book seven deadly sins that he couldn't really see the wood from the trees you know he, he, he wasn't really Appreciating that the defamation laws in the UK were such that we would inevitably be sued if we had published it. Anyway, um, uh, the following day, uh, I was really disappointed that that you know, his resignation. He was a friend of mine as well as a, mm. as a good colleague. So I called him up and I said, "Look, I'll try about just to show some support for you. That's what it was about, really, to try and su- show some support for you." I will try to sort of rework the piece that you wrote and put a different slant on it and, and write a story about your pursuit of Lance Armstrong and try to include some of the material that will be in the book that was being published the following day, okay? okay. I got permission then from, from um, the editor of the paper, John Witherow, to proceed on that basis. Stayed uh, until about 1 o'clock in the morning writing this piece of about 1,800 words or something. Um the lawyer spent about four hours going through it. The following day, um, about an hour, an hour or so before it was sent to the printing press, I sent it on to David, um, who uh, who wasn't in, who wasn't happy. He, was, he basically said, "No, this isn't in it. That isn't in it." Um, so I said, "Look, it's the best we can get. You know, it's as good as we can get legally." Mm. Um, so I was absolutely furious then that, you know, that, that he had reacted in this way. But anyway, to cut a long story short, um piece went in the paper. Um, and on, on uh, Tuesday morning, we got uh, a libel writ from shillings, the most fearsome defamation lawyers in London. Um, and two years later, the case was settled. Uh, and it cost the Sunday Times £900,000. Um, was it was it just the Sunday Times that he sued, or did he sue you? Yeah, and he or sued. David personally? Yeah, he sued. I I was sued personally, and David was sued. So there were three defendants yes. listed: David Walsh, Alan English, and um, and the Sunday Times. Um, so you know, we how were, stressful is that time for you? Uh or? look, it, it, you know, I didn't feel that stressed by it to be honest with you, because I didn't feel like they were, he he was going to come after me. I, I felt that the Sunday Times, which they did, you know, were going to we going to sort of support me. Uh, in it Um, but it it dragged on for a couple of years Um, but in terms of the David story um, I remember on the Sunday the paper came out walking around a a builder's yard in Twickenham um, talking to Paul Kimmage on the phone Um, you know because obviously Paul and David um, go way back and you know uh, uh, Paul was on the paper at this stage Uh, he joined in 2002 and I was just unloading my frustration on Paul, practically shouting down the phone at my, you know, you know, that ungrateful bastard, you know, I, what I did to try and get that piece into the paper. Anyway, it was such a, it was such a, a tense time, um, but looking back on it now, a, a memorable time. Um, and of course, we had a happy ending because when Lance went on, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey and, uh, and admitted being a drugs cheat, the Sunday Times said, thank you very much. Um, we are now counter-suing you. We want all our money back plus interest. Um, and that happened. How do you look back at it all now? Is it pride? Is it that happened? Like, what the hell? Or uh, It was it was great. Look, it was great to be involved in that. I, mem- I, I remember I listened to an interview with David quite recently when somebody asked him the same question. I mean, God knows, as, as you can see, my role in this is, almost non-existent it was just just circumstance mm. i was just trying to sort of stand up for a friend and try and do something to 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 keep him on the paper uh, and somehow I ended up um, you know in the middle of a legal scenario you know so virtually non-existent for david it was huge it was all consuming mm. um and somebody asked him you know was it stressful you know, was it a really difficult time? And I think if he was being honest and and, and he was being honest when, when, when he, he said it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really. I don't think he, he, he would probably say, um, and I'm sure you, you, you'll have him on this on this podcast at some point. I'm sure he'd be delighted to do it, that he probably never felt more alive as a journalist mm. um, because why else would you be getting into this game, you know?
3: Now elsewhere in Allen's episode he includes as one of his picks Jonathan Liu's match report from Liverpool 4 Barcelona nil earlier this year in which he describes it as one of his favourite pieces of sports writing. Ever Now, happily, Jonathan was our guest in episode 7 of the show a couple of months back, and we obviously asked him about that piece. Now, look, I'm naturally consumed by jealousy that anyone is able to write that well, but I figured, hey, look, the jealousy might be eased as Jonathan will probably tell us that he momentarily bottled magic in some hyper-enlightened state on that night, to which he may struggle to ever return. Fair to say that didn't exactly work out too well for me.
4: First thing I would say is it's not actually that good and and you're wrong uh and everybody everybody said it was gone you know to, to be fair uh a lot of people did like it uh but they're all wrong it's <laughs> it's 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 good i mean it's all right it's um i felt it was a little bit lazy in terms of and, and, and in fact if you go back through everything i've written over you know 10 years i don't know why you would but uh there's, there's actually very little original material in there uh <laughs> There's there's so many sort of phrases or tropes that are just jibbed from things I wrote I wrote like four or five years ago that nobody read because I was, you know, writing, um, you know, Portsmouth Lee Derby match reports for the Telegraph. Um, there's so, I I felt kind of I felt kind of fraudulent accepting all the all that sort of praise. And I remember walking down the steps from Anfield after writing it, going like, oh, shit, that was I mean it was, it was all right, it's a good story, but, um, didn't, didn't nail that. Um because yeah, and then you, you cause that, that's what I mean. You, you never quite know how how well you've done and, and until other people kind of make that judgment for you. So it didn't feel like it didn't feel like an amazing piece at, at all. What I would say is that I, I got I got lucky in terms of the narrative of the of the evening. Uh we I mean we all talk about how hard it is to write on deadline uh to the whistle, especially in an evening game. But if the direction of of travel is all in one direction it's all one way it makes it so much easier so I kind of hedged my bets a little bit I mean I started off thinking that Liverpool would have a, a good go at it and fall short and you could kind of write about the you know the swell of anticipation and the swell of hope and belief that allowed them to believe that they could do it and that would be quite a nice piece and then just as the comeback unfolded you just ended up following that through all the way to the end. And so that's what I mean when I say I got got lucky. If Barcelona had scored a a couple of late goals, that piece would have been ruined. The whole premise of the piece would have been ruined. Um, But it wasn't. And so it it provided me with a a coherent narrative and a cogent story and a a narrative arc that people found satisfying. And that's why people liked it. It It was people actually just liked Liverpool coming back from 3-0 from down to win 4-3. They okay. didn't actually like the piece. They just, liked, they just liked the comeback. You know what I mean?
3: Jonathan wrote that piece for The Independent and he has since moved on to The Guardian where he's been routinely knocking out a couple of outstanding pieces a week. Yay. Now one can't do a podcast about sports writing without acknowledging the massive shadow cast over the genre by the United States. And one of the greatest of all American sports writers, Gay Talese, once offered our guest from episode eight, Michael Moynihan, some pretty important advice.
5: Of course, my real reason for picking Talies is to be able to boast that I have his phone number and that I, I spoke to him and he invited me for dinner uh, in New York. And when I rang him, I was quite nervous He's because I was three years trying to get him to speak to me, uh, going through his PR people. And um, the first thing he says, oh, where are you ringing from? Oh, I'm ringing from Cork in Ireland. Oh, sure. My wife is a Sheehan and her grandfather was a patrolman in the New York Police Department. So... You know, we were we were great friends after that. But just just a nice touch. Uh I spoke to him for a good while, got a nice piece out of him. And he said, um, oh send me the piece, I'd like I'd like to see it. So I sent him a hard copy to his address. And a couple of weeks later I got a note back. Now, because Talis's father was um a tailor, um, he made notes on the little cardboard uh inserts you find in a shirt you know if you buy a shirt in Marks and spencer or somewhere you get a kind of a cardboard chest almost in it and when he wrote back to me he said you know i enjoyed the piece best of luck nice to read uh, someone who has a real voice something nice but it was written on a short card which was just a nice touch um from one that would appeal to someone who's a bit of a nerd um, about about these things i do i do remember when i spoke to him i asked him about, um DiMaggio and trying to speak to him, etc. And and some some of his, obviously he's in his 80s, some of his anecdotes are fairly well rehearsed. But he did say, look, you know, um, I was well-dressed and I dressed my best suit going to see him because it's important in that context not to be a supplicant. You're on a level with these people. You're not looking to get something from a sports person or a politician. You're meeting them as an equal. And the best way to do that is to show... You're a serious person. You've dressed for the occasion, and I was on the phone and Cork saying, "Yes, Gay, you are absolutely right." Looking down at my Canterbury tracksuit pants, which was stained beyond any salvation, a T-shirt, you know who knows what the original colour of it was, and a hooded top that was probably so dirty it could have walked across the room on its own. But <laughs> yes, Gay, you were quite right. We should dress appropriately for people to take journalism seriously.
3: As Prop Joe told us in the wire, look the part, be the part, mother. I'm not going to finish that sentence. Being a sports writer happily brings you into orbit with some truly fascinating characters. And we're about to close this show with two of our favourite yarns of the series so far. Now, throughout the series, I've been chucking out a few kind of stock staccato questions. And when I asked Ewan McKenna to remember one of his favourite ever interviewees, well, the response took a bit of an unexpected
0: turn. Jimmy White, we've played in a... he was playing a snooker exhibition match in the tie of all places. I remember okay. interviewing him. And he was playing the late Alex Higgins. And Alex went missing during the day and there was a panic anyhow. And he was eventually found having urinated himself asleep in the corner of a bookie's hammered drunk. But they got him up to play anyhow. And uh, he showed up. He was drunk anyhow. And the little kid at the exhibition match in a hotel in the tie made a noise as he was taking a shot. And Alex turned around and started threatening this kind of 10-year-old. And the 10-year-old's dad threatened to put the cue ball through Alex Higgins' head. And Jimmy was sitting at the corner looking at all this night to interview Jimmy after this. But he was fascinating because he said, I was that guy. And I could easily have kept on being that guy. And I'd be dead like this guy's going to be. And he remembered to tell me about his cocaine addiction. And how his brother died one night, Jimmy White's brother. And he was really depressed and on a lot of cocaine. And the body was in the funeral home. This is weekend of Bernie stuff yeah. now. He was sitting in the bar missing his brother. So he broke into the funeral home took the corpse, sat it up on a bar stool beside it with a top hat across the road, absolutely hammered with the corpse anyhow. Then he decided to bring the corpse clubbing and only a taxi driver thought there's something really weird and called the cops and the taxi pulled into the side of the road and Jimmy sitting there with his dead brother in the back of it. What the fuck? Yeah. That, Interesting. Is that, is that true? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that, genuinely, that's genuinely 100% true. Yeah. Holy God. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh, but yeah. I don't know what else he could do.
3: That story has since been verified in spite uh, of the extreme doubt that I evinced av- I while I was listening to it and why it ended up including it, or a version of it, in his autobiography. Author and academic David Goldblatt is another former guest of the show and he's responsible for arguably the most definitive football book around. It's called The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football. And throughout his episode, he shared with us arguably the most definitive anecdote of Bond villain come nigh infallible football administrator, Sepp Blatter.
6: I have met Blatter, yes. It was an extraordinary occasion. Uh, I ended up, I gave a lecture, would you believe, at FIFA. Um, FIFA hosted a uh, an academic conference on the history of the World Cup. And there were 15 academics there, um, each sort of taking one World Cup. It was really interesting, fantastically good stuff that I'd never heard before. And I gave the sort of like, you know, overview. And... Um, Anyway, I give my lecture and Blatt actually falls asleep during it, particularly the bit where I'm talking about corruption. And um, at the end, I read out, I'm sort of saying, you know, sometimes the World Cup can be a really amazing thing and create, you know, uh, a really powerful set of symbols, of cosmopolitan symbols. And in a fragmented world, that's really important. And I read out this piece that I wrote in The Ball is Round about, Um, the final of the 1958 World Cup between Brazil and Sweden when the Swedes we all fall in love with Brazil and the Swedes fall in love with Brazil you know even though they're getting thrashed by them you know because it's such a sort of amazing beautiful experience and it's quite a kind of romantic um, piece so I read this out and I can see Black Blatt's perks up at this point and he's like all sparkly eyed. And at the end he leaps up to sort of say, Oh, if only more people, you know, would write football, you know, about football in that manner. And what he hadn't worked out is that I had written it. He thought (laughs) I was quoting somebody else. And I said, you know, uh, Mr. Blatter, that's actually, I wrote that. Anyway, he then leapt out of his seat and started shaking my hand. Um, And it was, what I realized in that moment is that he um, he's one of the great compartmentalizers. You know, there's one side of Sepp Blatter that truly is a football romantic who really does actually love the game and um, who believes the propaganda that, you know, football can be a force of good in the world and all of that and really means it. And then there's another part of him which he manages to sequester away which knows where all the bodies are buried and that's often the way i think with powerful people is that they manage to keep these different dimensions of their life completely separate and allow them to sort of you know psychologically function um, by sort of burying one whole side of themselves from the other um so yeah you know he was like he is he is your, he is your slightly drunken um you know old uncle who you you, know, you meet at christmas dinners who drives you completely insane with their self-serving misremembered recollections of family life
3: so if you listen through to that to decide as to whether to sign up to the membership package and get access to the show we assume you're now fully on board so head to members.the42.ie to get involved As I said, you'll get the full back catalogue of episodes and you'll get access to the new series of shows beginning on the 14th of January. Now look, it would be remiss of us not to say a massive, massive thanks to our existing members. We love putting together this show and it's only your generous support that makes it possible. Now, this podcast series has occasionally touched on the difficult spot the industry finds itself in at the moment, as everyone tries to figure out the right model to fund their work. Membership is the one that we've settled on, and everyone at the 42 really appreciates your support for making all of this possible. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us about anything related to the show or suggest any format changes or possible guests uh, we want to hear from you because you're members you're paying for it this is as much your show as it is ours so get in touch by emailing behind the lines at the 42.ie or you will find me lurking on twitter at gcuni93 all that's left to say is to wish you all a very happy new year we will be back in 2020 when in the words of a stumbling former Liverpool captain we go again